Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Uh, my name is uh, Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, and today I'm pleased and honored to be interviewing Professor uh, Arne Vestad of Harvard University on behalf of New Books Network, the History Division. Professor Vestad is the author of a series of well-received books, the most famous of which is Third World Interventions and the Making of Our Times, which won the Bancroft Award in 2006 the Bancroft Award being the most prestigious award available um, to um, the American, available for any book written by, um, um, I don't think you have to be an American or even teaching an American academic institution. I think it's uh, awarded to any history book uh, written in the English language. Is that correct, Professor? That's right. That's right. It doesn't depend on where you are, but I think it has to be somehow related to American history. And today we are going to discuss with Professor Vestad his newest book, The Global Cold War. Professor, uh, what is the primary thesis of your book? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to, to have this conversation. I, I, this is a book that consults of work that I've been doing for a very long time. I started having an interest in the Cold War as a historical set of developments a uh, very long time ago, probably goes back to when I grew up in, in Norway in, uh, in the 1960s, which was very much a kind of frontline state with regard to the Cold War. So what I'm trying to do in the book is basically two things. I, I'm trying to understand why the Cold War became so prevalent as, a, as an international system of states, why it, and why it lasted for as long as it did, and why it became so incredibly dangerous to threat of use of nuclear weapons and, and, and other kinds of weapons of mass destruction. And then I'm trying to understand how it influenced people's lives. I'm, because this is not just about high politics. This is also about, you know, what goes on uh, on the cold phase, so to say. I mean, in terms of, you know, what people do with their lives, what kind of choices they make, how they understand their opportunities or lack thereof. And, and I think the Cold War had a tremendous impact at that level of, of human existence as well. So that's what, I, that's what I try to do in the book. And I think there is, it, it, it's almost never just one big finding in a book like this. But if there is one thing I should point to, it is probably that uh, the Cold War as an ideological framework or, or what you could call an ideological system really came out of the disasters of the early 20th century, that much of what I just talked about would be impossible to understand. I mean, the degree to which people really, really took this seriously. If you don't understand the kind of world that they came out of with two world wars and a, and a global depression and all the disasters of the early 20th century. So that's the, that's the framework in a way. Whether you want to call it a thesis or a, an interpretation, I don't know, but that, that's very significant for understanding the Cold War, in my view. 
And um, getting or getting back to um, before we go into, I should say, uh, the prehistory of the Cold War, which you situate going all the way back, I suppose, to the 1890s. Uh, you, in your introduction, um, uh, dispute, for lack of a better expression, uh, the characterization of the American historian John Lewis Gaddis of the Cold War as the as a long piece. Um, long piece being a, um, a title of the essay he wrote back in 1987. So, mm-hmm. in actual fact, the essay itself um, refers to an ongoing Cold War. It was not written post facto to the Cold War. But you um, have a caveats about that. Why is that the case? So I think it's very important to, to understand when John Gaddis wrote that piece, just as you, as you said. I mean, seen from the late 1980s, and this is where John is entirely right, um, when you think about these disasters that had taken place in the early 20th century, right, which I just referred to, the two world wars, the depression, the chaos, it's very easy to see why people from the vantage point of the late 1980s, would see the Cold War as a long piece, at least if you are positioned, you know, from either of the superpowers, I guess, United States or the Soviet Union, or even, or maybe even more so, from a, from a European perspective. So my quarrel is not so much, and I think it's important to understand this, is not so much with the idea that things could have worked out so much worse during the Cold War, the, you know, compared to what happened earlier. It is that using the term, the long piece, also is not so much by John Gaddis, actually, but by others who are, who are using it, um, a way of uh, pointing away from what happened during decolonization, what happened in, in what we used to call the third world, what the issues are with regard to the expansion of the ideological struggle between socialism and capitalism, into Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And there it was not a long piece. There it was a very violent, incredibly intensive period. So that's my quarrel with it. It's not so much, I mean, you have to understand it in an historical setting, I guess, or a historiographical setting. But looked at from today, um, you know, the, the, the importance, I think, of the Cold War is, is, is exactly um, what happened on a global scale. Uh, as the title of the book indicates, and not just what happened in the bilateral or the, or the, or the European frameworks. Now, going back to the prehistory, what would be for you the key or dominant break? Uh, would it be the outbreak of the Great War? Uh, would it be the economic dislocation of the 1890s? Would it be the Great Depression? Or, or would it be something that I think a lot of historians would say, ah, yes, uh, the um, Bolshevik Revolution? Mm. In a story like this, I think there are many different uh, sort of breaking points. Um, and it depends a little bit on what you look at. But if you, if you try to go with the approach that I've taken to the Cold War here, meaning both as an ideological uh, battle, and as an international system of space. I think there are two key breaking points. And the first one is, uh, as you indicated, in the 1890s. I think that's when three things happen that fundamentally frame the Cold War as it became in the 20th century. And the first one is the first real global capitalist crisis. So a sense that all of the world was interconnected with regard to economics, but in, in a negative sense, right? That what happened in uh, industrialized countries would also have effects for the rest of the world. And increasingly, when you got into the crisis in, in, in the 1890s, you saw uh, a lot of people starting to ask very hard questions about the future of capitalism as an economic system, which led to the radicalization of very significant parts of the labor movement, um, and it's in that radicalization that the Bolsheviks became the communists had their origin. So that's the second part, the radicalization of, of significant parts of, of labor. And then thirdly, the rise of the United States and Russia as transcontinental superpowers. I mean, this is the period in which the expansion um, on a continental scale of the United States and Russia was more or less 
these kinds of super states, not certainly not in the Soviet case, yet imbued with kind of ideology that it was going to have later on, but um, in terms of mere resources and expansion. So that's the first break in the 1890s. So the, the second break, I think, is when both the United States and the Soviet Union enter into World War II, so in 1941. Um, and what that meant was that you brought these two superpowers, as they already were, at least in the making, in terms of resources and capabilities, into a global battle that had already been set, with the outcome that you got four years later, that they were the only powers on a global scale left standing, right? So that meant, in terms of the international system of states, um, a, a, a kind of bipolarity, which then, of course, became the hallmark of the of the Cold War, as we went forward. Now, I couldn't quite get um, uh, from reading the book whether or not you would or adhere to the idea that some people used to, I, I don't believe a lot of people do any longer, that the passing away, the death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a aspect of a discontinuity from the Grand Alliance of uh, US, UK, and uh, Soviet Soviet Union. Um, am I reading you correctly? Do you do you adhere to the idea that Roosevelt's death did add an aspect of discontinuity and made the eventual breakup between two rival blocks um, much easier to uh, accentuate? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, it's a question of scale, of course. So I don't think uh, FDR's passing in any way is a, uh, an event of the same significance as the more structural readjustments that I was just talking about. Um, it probably, um, and this is a hypothetical, um, meant that um, that breakup in terms of strategic aims, first and foremost, probably happened sooner than it would have had if FDR had stayed around. Um, because of his, his political and diplomatic skills and, and his willingness to work, I think, up to a point with, with the Soviet Union and with Great Britain, for that sake. Uh, the knowledge, the, 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 the background that he had in terms of having fought the war as some kind of allies, allies at least against Germany and eventually against, against Japan. I don't think it made a difference in terms of, you know, the way it was often postulated in early Cold War writing, you know, if only FDR had survived, then none of this would have happened. I think that's, that we are entering into the realm of wishful, wishful thinking. I mean, many of the, confrontations, especially over Europe, and especially over Poland, uh, that led to the break um, in the late 1940s, in a more specific sense, were already ongoing while FDR was alive. And I think eventually, uh, it's very hard to foresee that he wouldn't have taken positions that, you know, wouldn't be identical, would be very similar to those of the Truman administration. Now, um, in the past, a lot of historians would, in terms of the actual outbreak of the Cold War, would posit a particular event or crisis um, for people who, myself, who started reading about the Cold War 30, 35 years ago. There was an old literature which would discuss uh, the Duclos letter, um, uh, uh, Duclos being a... Um, hierarch in the French Communist Party, who wrote a famous letter to uh, the American, actually former American uh, Party head, Earl Browder, the American Party having self-dissolved itself in 1944 on the basis that uh, the Grand Alliance uh, made any type of class struggle in the United States um, no longer needed. In fact, meaning the dialectic was no longer necessary. Um, people point to that, or people point to um, uh, Stalin's speech in December 1945. Other people point towards the uh, crisis over Turkey and Iran in late 45 and in 1946. What is your sense of that? So I, I think that it's really very difficult to search for a specific moment in time when all of this comes into being. And as with 
whole big historical process. This is a gradual set of developments. Um, so I, the best way probably of asking that question is if, you know, is there a point of no return? I mean, a point in which it is highly unlikely, at least for the foreseeable future, that it would have been possible in any way to roll back the extreme excessive militarization of the, of the Cold War. And that point, I think, is... Um, in, in 1950, with the with the advent of the Korean War, I think all the way up to then, even after you get the rival military blocs put in place in Europe, you know there would have been continuing rivalry for sure. I mean that I don't think would have gone away. But would there have been possibilities for limiting the arms rates, limiting the militarization, limiting in many ways the globalization, right of the of the Cold War? I think there were such, you know, there were some some opportunities of that sort, and this is perhaps where I I, I differ from some of the more traditional uh, historiography of the Cold War, particularly of the U.S. side. I think even with Stalin in charge in the Soviet Union, you know, it would have been possible to imagine some kind of very limited form of, of limitation in terms of what the two sides wanted to do. But after the the North Korean attack on on on, uh, on the South in the summer of 1950. I think all of those chances were gone. I mean, the the, the conflict was, was militarized. There was a deep sense of insecurity, of acute danger, both in the Soviet Union and the United States, that made any kind of rollback of the Cold War just very very unlikely. So, you, in essence, your argument is that, uh, notwithstanding the structural aspects which make conflict between the two powers. Uh, to some degree, very likely, if not necessarily inevitable, there are also contingent aspects like the outbreak of the Korean War, which influence the, uh, how should I put it, the uh, yeah, style the of, um, yeah. of conflict mm-hmm. in terms exactly. of a very highly yeah. militarized version of the 1950s after the outbreak of the Korean War. But going uh, back a little bit, I take it that from your perspective, Stalin circa May, or if you like, uh, August, September 1945, uh, was open towards different scenarios for Eastern and Central Europe, that he was not necessarily at that point looking towards a complete civilization of uh, what subsequently was referred to as the satellite states on his... uh, uh, doorstep. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, depends, of course, on how you use these terms. So Stalin, the Soviet leadership, wanted control in in Eastern Europe as far as they could possibly get it. Control meaning security, uh, but also meaning decisive political influence on what happened internally within these countries. So that didn't change. The, the, the issue was how best to achieve that. And I don't think it was in any way given uh, based on, on what had gone before, so Stalin's political experience since the 1920s, that it was necessarily through the coming to power by themselves of communist parties in, in, in any of these countries that that aim could be best secured. Um, not because he didn't want to take over by the communist parties, because it was a way too weak, uh, too disunited, um, had, had too much of a troubled past, including with, with the Soviet party. So um, that's the, in a way, the challenge, I think, for, for Stalin in 1945 is to figure out, you know, how, how do you best achieve those Soviet aims of, of, of security and control? And I think it was a gradual process um, up to, at least up to 1947, um, for uh, Stalin to decide that it was only through um, decisive power by the Communist Party, by the Communist Party's being allowed to set up one-party states in all of these various countries, that that Soviet aim could be achieved. And I think that was influenced by two things. I mean, I think it was influenced by the hardening of the international uh, framework in overall terms. So, you know, the, the crisis outside of of Europe in, 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 in Iran, for instance, or in, in, in China, um, and with the American uh, exclusion of the Soviet Union from any occupation zone in, in Japan. But I also think it was 
are perhaps even more so are dependent on what happened internally within the Eastern European countries. So uh, what happened there, in a way, was that Stalin, to put it very bluntly, ran out of collaborators. Uh, It was very difficult to put together the kind of framework that he wanted to see based on non-communist participation in government. So, yeah, I think that's that's the best way of understanding what happened in the in the period immediately after the war was over in Eastern Europe. Understood. Now, in the case of the outbreak of the Korean War, you uh, seem to posit quite strongly that the key actor there was Stalin himself. Why is that? Because only he could make the decision. Um, The North Koreans, who themselves very much wanted to reunify the country, uh, by force or, or otherwise. Uh, I had no doubt that they wanted to proceed as quickly as possible, but they needed Stalin's go-ahead. So without Stalin's go-ahead, the war simply wouldn't have happened. And that that go-ahead, that, that, that clearance by Stalin came very late in the game. Um, uh, Kim Il-sung had appealed at least twice, if not three times, for Soviet support to attack the South, all the way back to 1948, and Stalin, for some really good reasons, had said no. Um, um, you know, there were other things happening. The Chinese Civil War was, was still ongoing. Uh, I think he still had hopes that things could be worked out, at least in a, in a, in a less confrontational manner, uh, between the blocs in Europe. And it's when all of that fails that the go-ahead then comes. Uh, in the spring of in the spring of 1950, it was a tremendous gamble on Stalin's side. I think he did it mainly because he was uncertain whether the United States would actually get involved uh, with regard to fighting on the on the Asian mainland, and because he was he had been able to convince himself himself or others had, had been able to convince him that this was actually a workable plan that the North because of the, uh, the, the increase in the military strength, the build-up that the Soviets had provided to the North Koreans, that they would be able to conquer the South before the United States would be able to strike back, even if it decided to, to fight back using its own forces. So I think that's what, that's what happened in the spring of 1950. It was a, it was a gamble that, that failed. Um, and it's also interesting, and I think I, I do cover that in the book, uh, how quickly Stalin came to the realization that it had failed. So, um, you know, if it hadn't been for the Chinese uh, intervention, I think Stalin would have been uh, quite ready to call quits um, on the situation in, in Korea as early as the, as the early fall of 1950. Now, in his uh, decision to allow Kim Il-sung to um, proceed with the invasion in June 1950, was he at all cognizant, or did he take into account the Atchison speech of January 1950, where Atchison deliberately um, omitted Korea from the proclaimed American security zone in the Far East? Well, he was certainly aware of it. I mean, we know that from the Soviet documents, that it even came up in the conversations between Stalin and Mao with regard to the overall political situation in, in East Asia. How important it was, I don't know. I think it probably contributed to the general sense that it was uncertain whether the Americans would actually get involved, would counterattack using their own forces in Korea. Um, it was in no way, uh, you know, it wasn't decisive in the sense that, you know, Stalin or, or, or Soviet intelligence picked this up and said, aha, you know, this gives us the opportunity that we've been waiting for. It wasn't like that. It was, you know, it was among, as is often the case with intelligence information, you know, it's a, or, or any kind of information, it's a, it's, it's a jigsaw. It's, you know, it's put together with other kinds of things that you, that you want to do. And uh, then the question becomes, certainly in Stalin's mind, uh, becomes, you know, what would the price be? If, if, if what you are hoping to achieve commensurate with the cost? And um, that's, I think, where, where this did play some, some role, but it wasn't decisive. Now, for yourself, as well as a lot of other historians in, of the Cold War, the Korean War itself is, for lack of a better expression, a, a game changer in terms mm-hmm. of the changes 
everything on both both sides. In the case of the West, it has been fairly well known for any number of years now that uh, containment, the American policy of uh, trying to contain the Soviet Union, um, became at that point after Korea uh, highly militarized. The uh, um, planning document called NSC 68, which was uh, uh, formulated at the behest of Dean Atchison, the Secretary of State, by his policy planning director, Paul Nitze, um, posited a much higher level of American military expenditure on the presumption that uh, the United States, since it cannot um, uh, ascertain what Soviet ambitions are, it could only go by what Soviet capabilities were. Um, therefore, spending 10 or 12 percent of G GNP GDP on um, the military. Uh, but my question would be for you is, less is well known on the um, effects on the other side in terms of Soviet sky of loss, its allies, satellites, etc. Can you go into a little bit how the Korean War affected them? So I think you're entirely right in saying that the most important aspect of the Korean War is the militarization, the regimentization, what people call it, that regimentalization that, that it led to on, on both sides. I mean, there was a strengthening, um, I think both in the West and in the East, of this sense that the um, superpowers wanted to make sure that their systems of alliances were more integrated. And that meant that there was much less room for maneuver. But also internally, and, and this is particularly visible in, in Eastern Europe, um, there was uh, an, an overall attempt at making, uh, there, was a, there was a kind of threat inflation or security inflation, or whatever you want to call it, uh, which meant that increasingly, uh, both Stalin, as long as he was, was around, and the post-Stalin leadership believed that the only way in which the Soviet Union could be fully secure was by creating the kind of regimes in Eastern Europe that were almost models uh, or almost modeled on on uh, what the Soviet Union itself looked like. So I think this is the best way of understanding the effects of the Korean War. So the, the Korean War made the Cold War go from contingency to perpetual crisis. In a sense that this wasn't just a clash between great powers, you know, which had happened on a number of occasions over the past 200 years. Um, this was a, was a kind of cataclysmic battle for, for the survival of the world. Right? It wasn't just about security in a narrow sense anymore. It was a, really a life and death struggle. I mean, the sense that if your, your own side didn't prevail, um, then the other side would win a total victory, including you know the collapse of your regime or the collapse of your political system. So I think that sense of urgency, of crisis, is what the Korean War created. I mean, that was also part of the reason why the war was fought the way it was with you know disastrous consequences for, for Korea. But it also it very much impacted people's mindsets on the ground on a, on, a, on a global scale, that this wasn't just an ordinary, you know, clash of, of, of great powers. This was about something much, much bigger. And how did it affect the Sino-Soviet alliance? So it created the alliance in many ways. I mean, the, uh, there would have been some kind of relationship between uh, the Soviet Union and China anyway, given the fact that it was a Communist Party that came to power in China in, in, in 1949. Um, but it's unlikely that it would have developed into such a very close alliance as quickly as it did if it hadn't been for the Korean War. Now, as you know, I mean, quite a number of historians see this both as a strength and as a weakness in a way in terms of the Sino-Soviet alliance. The, the fact that it moved so quickly to become so comprehensive also put a lot of stress, a lot of strain on the alliance itself, maybe especially in the sense that the Soviets wanted to go further and faster, interestingly, especially after Stalin's death, so during the 
the only short years uh, go further and faster in terms of building the alliance than, than what the Chinese really were prepared for. But what you could see from the 1950s, and I think this is crucially important for understanding the, the Western and the U.S. reaction, is how successful this alliance was. I mean, not just did they fight jointly, though, with the Soviets working mainly behind the scenes in Korea, um, and felt that they prevailed in many ways. Um, but it also meant that you had one communist world, you know, going from halfway down the Korean Peninsula to the, you know, to the, the, the Finnish border or the Italian Italian eastern borders. You know, that's a that, that's a real uh, threat if you see it from a Western perspective. The fact that the biggest country in the world, the Soviet Union, in terms of territory, had joined up with the most populous country in the world, China. Uh, so that increased that sense of, of of crisis, I think, from a Western perspective. Uh, staying with uh, Sino-Soviet relations for a minute, I take it just from the text that you don't really agree with uh, those historians, I'm thinking like David Allen Mayer, um, mm. who posit that uh, the Americans, at least in the Eisenhower administration, deliberately pursued a hard line vis-a-vis uh, China for purposes of trying to disrupt the um, Sino-Soviet alliance. The thinking being that uh, if the Americans pushed a hard line in, say, in the out in the ending of the Korean War, where Eisenhower allegedly um, uh, stated um, sotto voce, as it were, to the other side, that if it was the matters were not wrapped up by the summer of 1953, he would employ uh, nuclear weapons. The Kumoi Matsu crisis of 54-55, where the Americans made um, threats to possibly uh, employ vis-a-vis the Chinese nuclear weapons, as well as uh, the similar crisis in 1958, uh, where the same islands, that all of this was part of a determined strategy to try to, uh, I think Mayer uses the expression of cracking the monolith, by putting pressure on the weakest link? I don't think there is any doubt that some people are on the U.S. side. I mean, there is a huge discussion, as you know, about how, how widespread or how, how predominant this perspective was. But I think there was no doubt that that, that was one of the lines of thinking that existed um, in the United States, vis-à-vis the Sino-Soviet uh, alliance. I think my doubt is, first and foremost, of how uh, effective this was, even if it had been implemented more as an all-round U.S. policy than I think it, it, it happened to, to be in the end. I don't think that's where the, the real significance in terms of the crisis within the alliance actually came. I mean, if, if anything, it came, uh, in a way, in the opposite direction, but... The, uh, what the Chinese wanted to see was a harder line um, against the United States. They wanted to see a more confrontational uh, policy towards the U.S. than what the Soviets, particularly in the sort of mid-Hushov era, um, were willing to go for. Uh, but that said, if you think about the collapse of the alliance in itself, which I date fairly late in the 1950s and early 1960s of the Soviet alliance. I think that mainly came out of Chinese domestic politics. I think what killed it off in the end was Mao Zedong's absolute conviction that in order to succeed, his revolution in China had to move further to the left. It had to become more radical in terms of the domestic transformation, you know, leading to the Great Leap Forward and the, and the later the Cultural Revolution than what the Soviets had been willing to go along with. So here we're back to this issue of the degree to which the Soviets had got themselves through their advisors stuck into the domestic scene in China. And their advice was always for gradualism. I mean, a little bit like, you know, what had happened in the Soviet Union itself after Stalin's projects, that socialism had to be introduced, but it had to be in a pragmatic, long-term kind of uh, manner. Uh, 
taken into consideration the, the domestic situation within the country. While what Mao wanted to do was exactly the opposite. He wanted to move very, very quickly towards socialism and then communism, showing the capabilities of the Chinese people to achieve this kind of, 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 uh, of success that he, that he foresaw. Uh, and when the Soviets advised against that very strongly, that's, I think, where, when the idea started um, being born, first with Mao himself and only a very small group of his closest advisors, that in order to succeed with that program, the alliance with the Soviet Union had to go. Um, and it is, you know, we really think in 1958, 1959, when that's happened. Now, going back a little bit, with the death of Stalin in March of 1953, uh, you seem to posit that there was a possibility of a partial um, or more than partial de-escalation of the conflict between the two blocs. Could you go into that a little bit? And if you could, who do you say is the key actor on the Soviet side in terms of that? Because in, in, um, in some of the literature, it would appear that for the two months when he was in ascendancy, more um, than three months, uh, I think until June 1953, Maria was the one who appeared to be most anxious to, um, as it were, uh, de-escalate de or, if you like, uh, wrap up uh, the sort of exposed uh, Soviet position in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, particularly the uh, putative DDR. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. I mean, based on the evidence that we have now, Beria is certainly the one who is most interested in moving as fast as possible in de-escalating tension uh, with the West on a whole range of issues, starting with ending the Korean War, of course, but, but also with regard to the situation in, in Europe, um, including the situation in Germany. I think the reason for that was probably that he knew more about how weak the Soviet Union really was militarily and, and possibly also politically after Stalin's death compared to the United States, compared to the, to the West. I think he was really, really concerned, as was the whole group. But as I said, he probably knew the situation better, having been head of the, uh, of the intelligence apparatus. Um, that war could break out, that there could be, you know, that the policies that uh, had been put in place after Stalin's death was really moving towards some kind of great power war. And the fact that Stalin increasingly towards the end of his life had been talking about that war almost as a necessity, I mean, that it would happen. Uh, I didn't say when it would happen, but he became increasingly preoccupied with the idea that war was coming. Uh, you know, that led to that sense of... Uh, on the side of the Soviet leadership. But in overall terms, I think the, the leadership was pretty united, uh, even after the Beria, uh, uh, for, for reasons that were connected to the, to the inner party struggles uh, of the Stalin's death, even after he was, he was uh, purged and, and, and then killed. Uh, I think the leadership group was pretty convinced that it was in their interest to find some kind of way to reduce tension overall. Not necessarily abolishing the Cold War as it was being formed as an international system, but certainly reduce the, the immediate tensions that were there at the time. And you would posit that the Americans, to some extent, were deficient in responding? It was certainly too late in responding, and too late, uh, I mean, both Americans and West Europeans for that matter, so on this point, probably Americans more, in picking up what the, what the opportunities were, what the possibilities were. And I think there are two reasons for this. One was, it's it, it about misperception. It's about not understanding the opportunities that were there in dealing with, on a basis of strength, of dealing with the post-Stalin uh, leadership. Um, but the other one, uh, which is equally important, was that there were some real dangers on the Western side, and particularly the U.S. side, in trying to de-escalate the Cold War at that particular point. Because this is exactly when the United States, after having argued for it for a very long time, was able to create a Western military alliance in which the other countries, the Western European countries, saw uh, that militarization as having a real value for them. So then taking a step back and saying, in effect, well, you know, 
maybe we can get out of this overall, I mean, in the sense of, of reducing tension, may not be the kind of message that the United States wants to send to its allies at that point. So I think there was, some, you know, it's not just about misperception in itself. It's also about, uh, you know, the whole kind of atmosphere that had already been created then with regard to the Cold War in the West. Now, the, I think from your perspective, from many historians' perspective, the key change over the 1950s is the beginning of first uh, Little Pebbles, to use that metaphor then, by the end of the 50s, early 60s, an avalanche of uh, decolonization. What, from your perspective, is the relationship between the Cold War and decolonization? So I don't think the Cold War created decolonization in itself. I mean, it certainly didn't create the uh, anti-colonial resistance that emerged. It didn't create the kind of weakness with the imperial centers that came out mainly out of two world wars and and, and the economic changes of the early, early 20th century. But it probably influenced and influenced very strongly the format that some of this took. So in terms of how the uh, decolonization happened, what kind of regimes that came out of it, probably also the speed with which it happened. I mean, the, the fact that in the 1940s and 50s, the main colonial powers, meaning Britain and, 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 and France, had to concentrate on their own security within a European context, so securing the home territory, as it were, was certainly something that influenced the degree to which leaders in both these countries were arguing very strongly that that was not um, commensurate with having a uh, large colonial empire that was then seen mainly as a, as an economic burden, not an economic opportunity. Right? Um, I also think that was the perspective that the United States held up uh, to its Western European allies. I mean, the United States, um, in some cases, the Dutch decolonization in in uh, what became Indonesia is probably the best example, but also to some extent Britain and India pushed for decolonization to happen earlier rather than later with regard to not giving up uh, the kind of opportunities that the United States was fearful of to communists within these decolonizing states, so in this case India and, and Indonesia. Uh, many American policymakers who look closely at this believe that the more quickly the decolonization uh, process was complete, the less of an opportunity there was for this, in their terms, being hijacked uh, by, by communists or, or leftists. So I think those are the connections. I don't think it's a, it's a matter of this happening as a reflection of the Cold War, but it, you know, it became heavily influenced by the Cold War in its execution. Now, looking at a conflict which comes directly out of the crisis of uh, colonization, decolonization, which is the Indo-Chinese slash Vietnam War, uh, from reading your text, it almost appears as if, uh, given most of the other positive things from the American or Western perspective, which are happening in the mid-60s, particularly the um, uh, events in Indonesia in, in late 1965, that the American uh, militarization of the conflict in 1965 in South Vietnam almost appears to be an act of madness. Mm. Well, it's, it is very important, I think, in order to understand uh, the U.S. involvement in, in Indochina in general, in general terms, to understand how closely related to the Cold War that was. Right? I think... Um, this is perhaps the most important aspect of, of trying to understand the Indochina conflict from a, from a U.S. perspective, is to look at what kind of judgments went into it and a kind of excessive atmosphere with regard to the bipolarity of international politics that I talked about earlier on that the Cold War uh, entailed. Because as you said, in the the, the, the situation in the, in, in the mid-1960s in many ways is that, uh, you know, from a, from a U.S. perspective with regard to the, to the third world, things were not working out all that badly. So, I mean, a number of uh, uh, 
left-wing regimes, none of them communist, but all of them radical and, and, and to some extent very skeptical of the U.S. role in the Cold War in Indonesia or in, 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 in Algeria or in Ghana, were gone by then. And there was a general sense that um, there was a lot that the United States could achieve uh, without the use of military means in terms of dealing with uh, third world radicalism. Uh, and that's exactly the, the point in which the United States decides to get military involved itself in, 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 in Vietnam because of the fear that this one uh, situation with regard to Vietnam itself would lead to a kind of domino effect with regard to others. It's not just about Vietnam. It is about what's going to happen in the rest of Indochina and eventually in the rest of Southeast Asia. Uh, but at the same time, there is quite a lot of evidence at the time that things were not moving in the direction of, of, of support for communism in that, in that part of the world. So that's the... I think, I think that's the, the, the basic challenge when we try to go back and understand the origins of the American sort of on-the-ground involvement in, in Vietnam, that we have to understand it within this very intense Cold War atmosphere that exists. Now, in the same time period, you very skillfully delineate uh, the differences between the type of uh, hegemony exercised by the United States in Latin America vis-à-vis uh, -vis the type of uh, hegemony exercised by Soviet guy of Lost in Central and Eastern Europe. Can you expand on that a little bit? So I think there are very different kinds of, uh, of attempts at, at, at political influence and control. I mean, the, because the, city, the political situation on the ground was, was different, and the in, in, in Latin America, what the United States faced was a situation in which there were deep uh, dissension, there, were, there was a deep conflict between the left and the right in, in Latin America. It probably would have been there even if it hadn't been for the rapidly increasing role in economic terms, first and foremost, of the United States in the middle part of the, of the 20th century. Uh, what the United States then did uh, was to make use of its uh, economic and military preponderance with regard to uh, Latin American republics to try to push in the direction of what was seen as Cold War security on a continental scale, rather than uh, uh, trying to take a more balanced approach with regard to politics within the region. And this then ended up in the United States allying itself very directly and, and in a very negative form with a number of military dictatorships in, in Latin America when you get from the mid-1960s, very much, by the way, at the same time as the U.S. involvement in, in Vietnam starts to be ramped up, uh, from the, from the mid-1960s and up to the, the early 1980s. On the Soviet side in Eastern Europe, um, the situation was different in the sense that the Soviet control, of course, came out of having the Red Army, or having had the Red Army on the ground, during the period in which the political reorganization of these countries actually took place. So it was a much more decisive influence than what the United States had uh, in Latin America. And you could, on the other hand, of course, argue that the United States' influence in Latin America was more profound because it was more uh, oriented towards the you know, economic format, the economic framework of the, of the integration. That was exactly what the Soviets didn't have in Eastern Europe. But in terms of the immediate uh, both willingness and ability to influence political outcomes, I do think that the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe was in a very different position, much stronger position than the United States was with regard to Latin America. Now, you have a very novel description of the period from 19, I suppose it's 1968 to 1979. You characterize it as the age of Brezhnev. Can hmm. you tell us why? It's mainly because I find Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet leader of those times, to be almost a perfect exemplar of that middle-period Cold War, uh, high Cold War, if you like, leader. Uh, very oriented towards stability of the Cold War system, very cautious, extremely proud of the achievements of his, his own country. Um, um, 
very much believing still in, in an ideological form that uh, the system that he represented would eventually be successful on a global scale, <laughs> but that it would take time to, to get there. Um, not very imaginative, not very confrontational, but also someone who could be extremely brutal when, when he saw that as being called for, such as with the invasion of, of Czechoslovakia in, 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 in 1968. But as long as people were willing to live within the kind of framework or the kind of balance that had been put in place during the Cold War, uh, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev was a happy man. Um, so that's the kind of, of image, I think, that is essential for understanding that middle period. Uh, the Cold War had become settled as an international system. It wasn't less dangerous than what it had been before, in many ways, uh, even during the, the taunt and arms limitation period, in terms of the buildup of, um, of military power, it became more dangerous. But it had become more stable, and it had become, in many ways, more predictable. Now, in um, uh, the same time period, in your discussion of uh, the Nixon administration, uh, you appear to indicate that you regard Nixon rather than Kissinger as being the innovator in foreign policy. Why is that? Well, I think there's very little doubt about that. I mean, when you look at the historical record, that most of the ideas of breaking out of the kind of, of uh, restricted framework that the United States to some extent had imposed on itself during the early Cold War, meaning no active diplomacy with regard to the major communist states, um, that that was something that came out of Nixon's own sense of politics on a global scale rather than out of of Kissinger's more academic um, understanding of, of, of developments in the global scale. But in many ways, um, you know, it was a very, it was a really, really good combination. I mean, the, uh, Nixon was the one who set up, as the President Trudeau, the, the big framework for, for what he wanted to see happen. And then Kissinger was the one who was looking at the opportunities of actually executing these moves and, <coughs> and, and see how they could be made to happen. How they could be, uh, how they could be developed. So it's not so much when someone else was asking me about this. It's not about evaluating Kissinger's role. I mean, it was very, very significant. But it's more about trying to understanding the president's political mindset to understand how this came about in the first place. And that's why I'm saying, you know, it wouldn't have happened without Nixon. So, you know, if someone of a more conventional uh, U.S. foreign policy certainly U.S. foreign policy in the Cold War mindset have been elected uh, president. Uh, I don't think any of this would have happened in, in, in the way that it, that it did. Now, would it be correct to state that the underlying rationale for the policy of detente of uh, Nixon Kissinger was uh, their idea, their um, um, fear that the United States at that point in, in time, or the West in general, was in decline, or to use the expression of uh, Soviet expression of the period, that the correlation of forces was against the West. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think for Nixon, I think it was not so much about the decline uh, overall as, as about certainly uh, a momentary period of weakness. Um, I don't think he ever tried to figure out how long it was going to last. I also think he thought that with a, a second period in office that he would be able to turn it around, at least to some extent. Um, so that was also part of the reason why he acted the way that he did. But I do think it came out of a sense of weakness, without, without any doubt. And you can understand why. I mean, you know, you had the, the involvement in Vietnam was not going anywhere positive from a U.S. perspective or in the rest of, of Indochina. Um, the third world as a whole, in part because of the U.S. involvement in, in Vietnam, had taken a, a direction much for the worse from, from an American perspective. There were all kinds of difficulties in the relationship, particularly in economic terms, between the United States and Western Europe and the United States and Japan, with Japan's economic uh, importance increasing very much the way Nixon saw it on, uh, you know, in... in, in, in uh, ways that didn't serve the United States in, in, in a broad sense. And then, of course, the 
about the domestic developments within the United States itself. I mean, the, the, the sense that young people especially, and people coming out of U.S. minorities, did not agree with the kind of Cold War policy that had been developed. Um, domestically and internationally since the since the 1940s. So I think that's what it came out of. Um, but I think one has to be careful with the idea of declines. I mean, it's not necessarily a decline in the longer run, but it was certainly necessary, Nixon thought, from a U.S. perspective, for the Cold War to become less predominant in U.S. foreign policy making than it had been for a while. Now, uh, in the same time period, um, specifically 1971, 72, did the United States get anything concretely from the reestablishing of relations between itself and uh, Communist China? Well, I mean, what that was all about was, first of all, was putting pressure on the Soviet Union. So, in the sense of uh, Nixon's thinking, it wasn't so much about China itself. So this grew on him, I think, over time, particularly after his own visit in, in 1972. Um, it was first and foremost about putting pressure on the Soviet Union, telling the Soviets that the United States did have options internationally that could be used to the advantage of the United States and against the Soviet international positions. That was the main idea behind the opening to uh, to China. So in that sense, you could say that the United States did get, uh, both in the 70s and, and maybe even more so in the 80s, um, a leg up on on the on, on 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 the Soviets in terms of what they could do, uh, putting pressure on the Soviets all the way around the Soviet borders. The big question, of course, with regard to China, uh, is in a way whether that U.S. approach, uh, by the time you get to the to the end of the Cold War, uh, had outlasted itself. That China, in a way, as a rival to the United States, is equally important, if not more important than what the Soviet Union was. But that's the key, I think, with regard to Cold War mindsets, is that they changed very, very slowly. So, you know, the idea of the Soviet Union as the main opponent to the United States in international affairs was still there until the day when the Soviet Union no longer existed. <laughs> so, um, I, but, you know, slightly outside the framework, I guess, of the story that I wanted to tell in this book, but it's an interesting question to ask. Uh, how do you explain the downfall of detente? Was it simply the fact that uh, with the downfall of uh, Nixon, the um, uh, political um, rationale for it, or the political legitimacy for it, I should say, had uh, suffered a great loss, and that Kissinger, notwithstanding his many attempts at public explanations, I think at uh, 1975, 76, he was uh, taking uh, trips all over the United States, giving talks, trying to legitimize his policy, that uh, it's like Humpty Dumpty, it could not really put back together again. I think there were, I mean, there were several reasons why this uh, attempt at, at regulating the Cold War got into trouble. I think um, if it hadn't been for Nixon being forced to resign, uh, I think there would have been some possibilities for it to have lasted longer than what it actually did. That, that's a reflection, I think, on Nixon's own political priorities and his ability of, of handling the Republican right wing, who already at that point had, be, had become strongly critical of the detente uh, policies overall. But I don't think that was what determined the limitation in terms of the time span overall. Uh, of this policy. I think the basic problem was that the uh, on the U.S. side, the, the idea was to have, uh, to concentrate this on arms limitation talks and then believing that through emphasizing arms limitation, you could also get at least a limited form of cooperation in other such as regional conflicts on a, on a global scale. Um, uh, or, or political changes that took place elsewhere, uh, that the United States and the Soviet Union could look at these together. And that only happened to a very limited extent. There was a kind of oversell, if you like, uh, both by Nixon and Kissinger, of what the taunt really consisted of. While on the Soviet side, the idea was that this was simply about the military balance and about uh, you know, reducing the overall risk of war. 
and a very clear understanding on creation of soil that whatever happens elsewhere in the world, in, in Africa or South Asia or, or, or Central America, was not in any way connected to the to this aspect of the U.S.-Soviet relationship. That these were, as Brezhnev would have put it, you know, natural, unavoidable uh, events leading towards socialism in, in those countries. And that he wouldn't agree to any kind of framework uh, in the U.S.-Soviet relationship that would stand in the way of that. So I think those things together would be enough to defeat this framework. Uh, but if Nixon, you know, uh, as a political leader, had survived longer than what he did, I think it probably would have lasted longer. You don't necessarily agree then with uh, people like Raymond Gartolf who argue that for Nixon Kissinger linkage was really only one way. Um, hmm. They point to the fact that after the summit in Moscow in 1972, they went to Tehran where they signed off on the Shah's uh, policy of uh, trying to undermine, if not overthrow, the Ba'athist regime in Baghdad using the Kurds as a lever. Indeed, part of it. I, I think, uh, I mean, that kind of approach existed on 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 both sides, and there was a. Uh, I know, obviously, there was a hardening uh, on the U.S. side uh, after after Nixon, and the sense of having to look at political realities inside the United States. But throughout, I think there was this sense that, you know, uh, the United States took as much out of the detente process as it as it possibly could. And so did the Soviet Union. But at the same time, the understanding in the United States in terms of the oversell of the detente process in for domestic political consumption was such that anything that seemed to happen anywhere in the world that went against American interests was seen as somehow the Soviets, you know, disregarding detente. Um, and this, I think, is what really provided the opportunities for the critics of the Tonks, especially within the Republican Party, to have such a field day in the late 1970s. Would you say, um, going uh, into the 1980s, that uh, would the Soviet Union have collapsed if the price of oil had held up to the highs that it had 1980 and early 81? It's a very difficult question to answer. I think... I mean, the Soviet collapse, just in the last few minutes we have now, I mean, the, the Soviet collapse mainly came out of um, domestic developments within the Soviet Union itself. I mean, a, a, an economy that wasn't able to reform itself up to the point of producing what most people within the Soviet Union wanted to see in terms of, in terms of material welfare. Um, I think... You're right in saying that a critical point, I think, a really critical point, is right at the end of the 1970s. So many of these things seem to come together, right? Um, an increasing sense of insecurity within a account framework um, uh, on the side of the United States, which contributed very significantly um, to the election of Ronald Reagan as, as U.S. president, and a sense on, on the Soviet side of not, knowing where to move domestically and internationally. On the one hand, wanting the count. On the other hand, as in the case of Afghanistan, being willing to act militarily uh, when one felt that uh, the Soviet position was, was threatened. Then there were the upheavals in Poland right after the uh, Afghanistan intervention in which the Soviets, uh, with Brezhnev still in, in, in place, uh, decided that they were not going to intervene, that it just would cost too much, that it would be too difficult. Um, so th there is a moment there, right at the end of the 1970s, at the 19 uh, beginning of the 1980s, when things could have moved in many different directions. So I think understanding the way the Cold War ended, uh, coming out of that period, is, is really important. If you wanted uh, people to take away one thing from your book, what would it be? I think the most important thing uh, when we look at the Cold War today is to think about how easy it is to be misled by great ideas or ideologies. Um, this sense that 
uh, it's so important to have one big idea, one set of big ideas that you stick to. Uh, whatever else happens in the world, whatever kind of information that you get that could convince you that other things are actually true or, or equally important. Uh, that's the danger that we were all in during the Cold War, that people stuck to that view of the world with such intensity that they were basically willing to destroy the world in order to achieve the rights. That, I think, is the big warning that comes out of the Cold War, that incrementalism, small changes for the better, uh, are more important, more significant, and probably better in the longer run than these, than these grand schemes for the improvement of humanity, in which you run an incredible risk for destroying much of humankind in the, in the process of achieving those things. That, to me, at least, is the big lesson of the Cold War. Uh, Professor, you are a Burkean conservative, leaving organic growth. <laughs> I, it's been very interesting to see the, the reviews of this book, that um, the right and the left in political terms are both equally unhappy with it. And, and that makes me think that I might be onto something here that, that might turn out to be quite significant. Well, I would definitely agree that is a book which would um, be, I would say, everyone should read, both uh, scholars as well as the lay public. It is an extremely interesting topic, and you bring out many new aspects of it. Uh, I found it to be extremely enjoyable. So uh, that being said, Professor Vestad, let me thank you very much for speaking to us today, and thank you, uh, th thank you again. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure, Real, really good conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. This is Charles Cotillo, New Books Network. <laughs>